In this episode, I'm joined by Rico Schneller, who is a professor at Leiden University. He is the author of Wild Beasts of the Philosophical Desert, Philosophers on Telepathy and Other Exceptional Experiences. In this episode, we discuss his soon-to-be-published book, Perspectives on Synchronicity, Inspiration and the Soul, alongside discussions on death, suffering, modernity, mysticism, the work of Jacques Derrida and limit experiences. I would like to thank all my patrons for making all this work possible, and if you'd like to support Hermetics Podcast or become part of the Hermetics community, please find our Patreon, donation, merchandise, and Discord links in the description below. Enjoy. Uh, so, Rico Schneller, uh, thanks for joining yeah. us on Hermetics Podcast. Thank you. Um, so, before we jump in, we are going to be talking about your, your new book, which hasn't been released. You sent me a chapter. Uh called Perspectives on Synchronicity, Inspiration, and the Soul. But before we jump into this, we're True. primarily going to be talking about death and suffering. Just tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your work and what it is you do. Thanks a lot. So, yeah, Rico Schneller, I've been teaching for a long time at the universities of Utrecht, Leiden, and uh, Eindhoven in the Netherlands. I wrote my PhD thesis on uh, the French philosopher Jacques Derrida and his relation to negative theology, uh, which is a tradition in the history of Christianity and also Islam, by the way, in Judaism, which uh, which uh, claims that nothing can be uh, said about God, but we can only be silent about him and speak about him in negation. But uh, while working on this thesis, I got more and more interested in uh, Derrida's relation to Judaism and the Jewish tradition, especially the tradition of Jewish philosophy. So uh, that's how my, let's say, uh, intellectual uh, quest started. I, w- I started becoming interested in the Jewish tradition, especially its, uh, its, its philosophical uh, uh, dimensions, and Rosenzweig, well, Levinas, of course, Hermann Cohen, Maimonides, etc. So uh, gradually I also uh, obtained an uh, uh, I, I got interested into uh, uh, Asian traditions of thinking and philosophy. Uh, I was practicing yoga, etc., and I read a lot, lot about it, and uh, and uh, in um, consciousness. So that is still my predominant uh, field of interest: consciousness, the, the mysteries of consciousness, and I connect that to philosophy. Uh, insofar as um, the, the the 19th century, 20th century reaction to the age of enlightenment, the critical reaction of enlightenment, focused on the secrets, the depth depth of consciousness as something which stretches out far beyond the mere rational. Uh, and uh, that's what, what did not stop fascinating me ever since. It starts with uh, Schopenhauer and it goes on until Freud and Jung and beyond. And I must say that there was uh, some uh, colleagues who raised my interest for this, especially Hans Gerding, who became my colleague at some moment in Leiden University, ex- extraordinary professor for uh, uh, the metaphysics of theosophy, something like that. He was a philosopher and a parapsychologist, and he uh, uh, he inspired my interest for a lot of things that I was completely unaware of, but most particularly, let's say, the soft underbelly of philosophy. Uh, in other words, the the, uh, the experiential dimension of philosophy. And I discovered that there's a whole part of the philosophical tradition that is either uh, repressed or completely ignored, which started interesting me. For, for example, Schopenhauer, well, everybody who knows philosophy knows Schopenhauer, but 
who knows? Who's a, who knows that Schopenhauer was one of the first to take what we call today psychic or paranormal phenomena seriously? It, it is uh, unbelievable that a lot of philosophers are completely unaware of it, and if they were, they simply deny it or don't take it seriously. Whereas for, for Schopenhauer, it was a confirmation. He even called it a confirmation of his metaphysics of will. So, uh, and I take it seriously as a, at the philosophical level. So I am not into those uh, casuistry like, uh, well, something happened over there, out there, and so that can be. Uh, 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 multiplied uh, 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 until infinity, but I'm interested in the philosophical uh, uh, perception and uh, reflection upon uh, the uh, uh, unusual experiences. Uh, so it just interrupt me if I'm talking too long, but that's... Uh, uh, and then I uh, I was already interested in psychoanalysis, Freud and Jung, etc. And then at some point, I read in the, the bibliog bibliography to Freud's uh, Interpretation of Dreams, a very interesting title, The Philosophy of Mysticism, in German, of course, Philosophie der Mystik by Karl Duprel. I hadn't heard about this person before, but the title fascinated me, and that's so how I started. I, I tried to find this book. I read it, and it was one of the most beautiful books I ever read, <laughs> uh, together with a few others, but not too many others. Uh, that's how it really started. Uh, so Karl Duprel, a 19th century, uh, well, a Schopenhauerian, a thinker focusing on the unconscious, what he called the transcendental consciousness with a Kantian term. And uh, he started speculating about uh, accessing it or, well, it or explaining why it is impossible to access it in a normal way, uh, but in an intelligent philosophical way. So he was not just, how do you call it, such a speculating a lunatic, like there are so many of them, but he's an intellectual, a very uh, sensitive person. Uh, okay, I can talk at length about this, mm. Carl Duprel. Uh, another hero I discovered, uh, I, I think he discovered him before, was uh, Ludwig Klages. Uh, he lived uh, 1876, no, 1872, 1956. Uh, he wrote this book, uh, The Spirit as the Adversary of the Soul, a very thick book, 1400 pages. I read it, had it on my bookshelf for, for 20 years or so, and it always was, was, how you say, lurking or looming at me. It was looking, and I, I had a very boring uh, cover, uh, just uh, simply red or, or, or rust brown or so. So there was nothing attractive about it, but I felt attracted by this book. I started uh, putting it on the agenda for my classes. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I, I forced myself to teach about it. And when preparing to read it, I was first... Uh, Desperate because, oh, this is so difficult. How can I ever teach about this if I don't understand it myself? But, okay, I still persisted and I managed to teach about it and I continued to do so for a long time. And I can tell you, it's not a, it's not a secret that my students, well, they did not understand Klager's uh, text himself because it's very difficult, but he liked him. They, they, sorry, they liked him. They liked him. Uh, well, if you let me, I can uh, explain why that is. But it has to do with uh, Clarkes' emphasis on, let's say, pre-reflective, pre-rational uh, dimensions of consciousness, which uh, come to the fore in our uh, uh, non-conscious uh, activities, uh, sleeping, dreaming, acting out of enthusiasm, of inspiration, etc. So I, I could talk about Lagos for at length, but I will okay. keep it to the basics. Uh, 
Well, I do wonder if he's now going to return because I do need to ask you the uh, the hermetics question. So you can place three thinkers, living or dead, into a room and listen yeah. in on the conversation. Who do you pick? Uh, I think Ludwig Klages, Carol Duprel, and Jacques Derrida. <laughs> and especially the latter, one would, would be surprised to have him uh, in, <laughs> in such a conversation. But you could also say, uh, why put those uh, other weirdos in a conversation with Derrida? <laughs> Uh, but all of the three were, uh, well, well uh, disreputed. Uh, you say they were subject of, uh, of, of, of discussion, of debate uh, about, by academic thinkers who were uh, worried about, uh, well, about uh, this kind of thinking, <laughs> for, but for different reasons. Uh, Derrida was also very much, uh, uh, I'm looking for the word disreputed. He was uh, subject of debate. Uh, for, yeah, he was... Uh, uh, awarded with a kind of uh, uh, award in, uh, I think, uni- by the University of Cambridge or Oxford, and a lot of English philosophers they withdrew hmm. uh, and they found him uh, charlatan or something like that, uh, crazy. I don't care about that. But, uh, so these three, I'd like, I'd love to, 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 but I'm afraid that it would be. Uh, I, I'm not uh, sure that this discussion will be successful, as <laughs> uh, hmm. I, I would uh, fear that. Uh, discussion among any uh, great philosopher uh, might not be successful because that great philosophers have a tendency to not really understand the other even mm. though they would like to <laughs> or perhaps they would understand those philosophers those other philosophers better than these understand themselves <laughs> so uh, <laughs> it might lead to more confusion um, do you think there's a like a connection between those three i don't know do do prowl all that well um and i've only read some derrida but do you think that there's some form of uh, philosophical connection between those three thinkers there is there is uh, but one has to search for it it is so those who are well familiar with derrida are familiar with one of his key terms logocentrism so uh, putting a logos putting a well ratio reason at the center and a, a conception of reason which pretends to have access to truth and the truth which somehow corresponds with the structure of reason itself, which is a circular way of thinking anyway. That, but that is what is addressed by Derrida. And the, the, but the term logocentrism originates in Klages. Not many people know this, but Klages introduced the term. And I, there's one article about it, which I somehow found. But, but, but th- those who are interested in Derrida will never read uh, thinkers like Ludwig Klages because that's really a different cup of tea, as you English mm. would say, say. It's a different kind of thinking. And other, other, uh, the other way around, uh, admirers of Klages or, let's say, the philosophy of life are not likely to read thinkers like Derrida. Uh, but although there are c- connections, uh, I can tell you the most surprising one uh, I, I focused on this subject for our, our book, for, uh, Wild Beasts of the Philosophical Desert, Philosophers of Telepathy and Other Exceptional Experiences. But Derrida wrote a text, an article on telepathy. Uh, so well, that's not one of his most famous texts, to say the least. <laughs> and, and even if you read it at first impression, you might say, oh, this is a text on Freud. Uh, but, uh, okay, I studied the text several times, a difficult text. It is also autobiographical text, but you find uh, sentences in it in which Derrida says that that he cannot simply he cannot simply believe that non telepathy exists. So he cannot believe that non telepathy exists, which is the other way around. 
So he, 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 he suggests that telepathy is the usual, ordinary circumstance, the or, or usual, the ordinary condition. Uh, and, and that's so interesting. It is really a kind of uh, utterance or a claim by a philosopher who is really a philosopher, who somehow lives within his own world, which he pretends to be not just his own world, but, well, a world which extends beyond the boundaries of, of his own spirit. So, so uh, this links uh, Derrida to another subject which one would be amazed to find in his thinking that's the concept or the subject or the topic of synchronicity mm -hmm. synchronicity like the concurrence or the simultaneity of events which have no causal connection amongst themselves uh, i remember hans gerding my philosopher pa uh, parapsychology friend uh, when i first when at first conversations i had with him and i told about my phd about derrida and he, uh, he did not know derrida so well and he asked me are you aware that, uh, do you know if in Derrida the, there is, uh, he, if Derrida pays attention to synchronicity? Uh, and I was amazed, said, in fact, yes, hmm. absolutely. He doesn't use the term, but you only have to know Derrida just a little bit to be able to say that the, what is called synchronicity, huh? it's, a, it's a Jungian term. Though it's not limited to you, but so that synchronicity is all over, it can be found all over Derrida's work. Uh, for example, he, he writes about the topic and then he starts saying, Well, when I uh, started writing about the topic, I was called by a friend who uh, started to talk about the same subject, and then something happened, uh, and that also uh, coincided with my topic, etc. etc. There are remarkable examples of this. So synchronicity is everywhere, all throughout Derrida's work, even though he doesn't use the term. So you see there are links between Derrida and let's say Klages or Duprel or, or these kind of thinkers. But wouldn't wouldn't the clearest link between Klages and um, Derrida would be that they're both to a certain degree, whether or not they're in agreement working with Heidegger. You know, so there's the letters between Heidegger and Klages, and uh, Derrida was, uh, well, most notably influenced by by the work of Heidegger. Yeah, I don't know if Klages was influenced by Heidegger. I did not find any reference to Heidegger in his work. Uh, well, I'm not claiming that there is not none, really? but I didn't find any reference. No, well, there may be, but I, I, I didn't. I, I think I read a lot by Ludwig Klages, but I, I never found a reference to to Heidegger. Uh, so I think that there is a kind of, well, of course, he, he heard about him. And uh, I don't know if Heidegger ever refers to Klages, maybe once or twice. Uh, again, I don't know, but that could be a reference. But these two thinkers, they're completely, uh, they have lots of uh, ideas in common, but they are not uh, amicable toward, toward each other. Uh, Klages was a very independent mind. He was outside of the academy. He just... Uh, uh, gained a living by lecturing, by writing, by doing graphological research. And I, I research. I think that Heidegger would have qualified him as a biologistical thinker, something like that, as a metaphysical thinker, which in a way is true. Insofar as Clarkes also claims the term metaphysics for his own way of thinking. But I, I think that Clarkes is such a giant, and giants don't like other giants. Mm. <laughs> uh, so uh, Heidegger was a giant as, as well, of course. But in terms of today's philosophy, I think Heidegger is overemphasized. Of course, he's a great philosopher. Of course, he is. But there are too many thinkers uh, 
Itu Heidek. And I think it's time to just uh, leave him at rest for a while <laughs> and to, to take other thinkers who are just as great as he is. So that's why I prefer. And I think I, 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 I'm more than that. I'm convinced that Kla there is more in Klages than in Heidegger. What I find in Klages that cannot be found in Heidegger, I think, of course, this can be debated, is the notion of experience. I think Heidegger is just struggling with his own, the, the emptiness which his loss of his Catholicism uh, left in him. Well, of course, this can be debated. Uh, many Heideggerians will disagree with me. Okay, that can be debated. But this is what I believe. So he, he, he has uh, abandoned his uh, the religion or faith of his youth, and he pretended to find something as an alternative in, uh, well, here and there, <laughs> ultimately in Eckhart again, uh, in German poetry. But uh, I think he never really succeeded in finding an alternative and that's what kept him rolling, so to say, Heidegger. Whereas Klages, well, you can say the same about Klages, but I think Klages has a more intimate connection to experience. Uh, that's what makes Klages more um, convincing to me. Mm -hmm. Although, of course, I'm not saying I'm not Klagesian uh, all throughout. Of course, there are still other, always other thinkers. Uh, but Klages has something convincing since he has experience, to say it, to put it shortly. Okay. Okay, well, I think these three will um, probably return at some point, but most, most likely. Um, so this book, Perspectives on Synchronicity, Inspiration, and the Soul, um, why did you write it? And uh, is, is there a sort of a purpose behind writing it? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, pra pragmatically, it was a kind of harvest of many things I have been teaching in my classes uh, in the years before. And which I didn't want simply to slip to that slip through my fingers, slip away through my fingers. I wanted to maintain, preserve it somehow, my class, my course notes. But more importantly, I am strongly convinced that there is a kind of uh, common sense in academic philosophy. Well, many forms of common sense, but uh, well, broader and smaller ones. But I don't like common sense at all. <laughs> I, I, I'm getting excited over that. So uh, I, I don't like trends, and there are trends in uh, in what is called trend continental philosophy as well. I don't like that. I, I, I and I, I think that there are uh, there's always more to say. I, I am interested in those philosophers that have been repressed or ignored or marginalized, and I, I discovered that studying those uh, uh, marginalized philosophers is worthwhile. Uh, but I, I, I still uh, leave out the most important thing. Uh, so, so I, I, I said two. Uh, I gave two reasons. First, I want to harvest my own uh, teachings from the years before. Secondly, I dislike uh, consensus and, and common sense uh, formation and, and canonization of philosophy. But most importantly, I think that there, there's the role of what is called science today. The word science has been usurped by the natural sciences. Uh, 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 and even worse by those, uh, let's say, uh, mediocre minds uh, working in the natural sciences. They claim science to themselves, which is a, which I think is a crime against humanity. Um, and that has affected or infected uh, the humanities and philosophy. Uh, to the extent that uh, large strands in contemporary thinking believe that they should somehow, that their sole task for philosophy is to interpret the, in, the, the findings of the uh, natural sciences. 
where, whether they apply to nature or to the human mind or soul. Uh, to put it, make it concretely in uh, uh, what is called uh, neurology, uh, science of uh, the- theory of mind, uh, th- those kind of uh, approaches. Uh, um, Whereas uh, I think that what has happened through this is a a complete neglect or discontinuation of a very fertile and interesting way of thinking on consciousness, which has started to to develop, uh, well, always already, but especially in the 19th century, as of the age of Romanticism, which has simply been discontinued. And, uh, uh, well, repressed and discontinued and neglected, whatever you wish. So that uh, I'm asking myself so many times when I read the thing, well, I mentioned Carl Duprel, but there are, uh, there are others in uh, Fechner, for example, or Lazarus Hellenbach or Schubert or uh, uh, you name it, uh, or Klages, for example. Why are we not resorting to these thinkers anymore? Why are we limiting ourselves to the sole materialistic frameworks which are imposed upon philosophy today? And why are we blind to this imposition? And to the, why are we blind to the narrowness and the contingency of the premises which belong to, to this materialistic paradigm? That that is what strikes me. It makes me so emotional because it's I feel it's unfair and, and it's it's stupid even. Uh, this 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 prevalent uh, prevailing materialism, which doesn't which is blind to its own premises. What is done, in fact, is just one takes a, as absolute a, a particular strand or approach to philosophy, which originates in the 17th and 18th centuries. I'm referring to empiricism. And uh, never questions its starting uh, premises uh, of that form of empiricism. Uh, and that what, what is the inevitable result is that scientists or people who call themselves scientists are confronted with phenomena that does, do not seem to fit in the frameworks that have started by setting up for themselves. Uh, I'm referring to uh, quantum mechanics and and, uh, theory of relativity, but this is almost a cliche. Uh, And that's, uh, but I, 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 uh, although I'm not a a physical scientist at all, I don't understand uh, theory of relativity and quantum mechanics. But as far as I can tell, I I can understand it. I would say, well, I could have predicted you, dear Mr. or or, or Mrs. uh, Quantum physicists. I, I could have told you, and not just me. Uh, uh, so many other thinkers whom you have preferred to ignore or neglect could have told you. Uh, and now with thinkers like Einstein and others, they are just well, they are the, the greatest minds uh, you can imagine, absolutely. But they're struggling with the limits of the framework within which they were raised. Uh, so I, I'm not claiming that I have a solution because I uh, <laughs> I cannot make undone by myself. What has been, what has been, what has been corroborated by uh, centuries of uh, physical uh, scientific thinking, uh, but it's blind. And I think that our social, uh, um, social and narrow-minded mechanisms are also uh, uh, contributing to this, to the fixation, uh, uh, the fixing of paradigms. Uh, yeah, we know that's, that's what I was going to ask you: is where do you? You know that the the uh, the default materialist worldview, uh, which is held, you know, 
practically by basically everyone in the West unless they have a clear alternative um, and state otherwise. Uh, where do you where do you think socially that that's sort of come from? This this you know the all prevailing materialism. Yeah, I I uh, I think there are several explanations, and and I can only highlight or mention a few of them, of course. And there will always be yet another explanation to be given. The first, the easiest explanation is that it worked, or I, I, I rather I should say it seemed to work. It seemed to give results <laughs> following the uh, well, a certain way of of of, of uh, you say uh, crucifying nature. Put it on the procrustes bed. Uh, of our uh, research, uh, and then it will give some results which seem to work. But that is the easiest and superficial explanation. I think a great role is placed, uh, played by uh, uh, social pressure and by anxiety. Uh, uh, anxiety is, is most important, perhaps. So it seems so convenient to be able to uh, to explain nature or to, be, to, or to believe that one can one day explain nature. To be uh, finally aloof of the intervention of unexplicable events or forces or whatever you call it, uh, it, it feels safe. Uh, well, also very uh, disillusioning, of course, because well, we don't have anything to hope for anymore. Uh, but it it might feel safe. Uh, so I uh, think that plays a, a big role. Uh, and then again, like uh, scientists are are people like everybody, so they're very. Um, sensitive to social pressure uh, not not just by by uh, the man of the street or, or by uh, but but by their peers uh, uh, so that also gives rise to group pressure uh, and uh, it, it feels like a religious community uh, well uh, uh, not a good one but a bad one in which uh, uh, pressure social pressure reigns uh, and now they're calling oh this is not scientific if you do that and please uh, Keep to the rules of science, etc. In Corona times, we only have one reliable uh, resort, and that is science. It it is as though I, I were in the Middle Ages, in which uh, people say, "Oh no, it's only the church who can give us relief and explanation, etc." It's just the same. It's just the same. So uh, there's no difference. Uh, just the names have been uh, changed. So, and and uh, as I am an individual being myself, I'm not claiming that I'm insensitive to group pressure, but I, I, I am always alerted when I feel group pressure. And I hate it. I can tell you this is a personal remark. I hate it. I don't like pressure by nobody. Uh, and if I feel it, uh, wherever it comes from, uh, I, I, I feel a tendency to just uh, flee. <laughs> I don't want to have anything to do with it. Uh, so of course I'm not. Of course, this has risks of its own, <laughs> hmm. because uh, nobody can find uh, truth all by himself. Of course, uh, everybody is in need of others, but not uh, by being pressured by others. Huh? I I believe, but this may not be the question that you wanted to ask me. Uh, that may be in other direction, but just let me make one. I believe in dialogical relationship. A dialogical relationship with others, which is not identical with being pressured by others. Dialogue is something which I believe in. And dialogues can take many different forms, uh, always unexpected and unpredictable. Uh, but the, I think the, the main characteristic of dialogue is that it unsettles one, mm -hmm. uh, unsettles the fixed ground, the paradigm within which I, I, I have hitherto believed that I uh, could uh, be, be, uh, live and be safe. 
So, uh, okay, so yeah, I, I think that uh, materialism, uh, I, I think that materialism uh, is already overcome by uh, the most the, the, the most clever of, of the natural scientists, like, like the Einsteins and the Niels Bohr, etc., because they are not materialists anymore. They are not materialists at all. It's just the mediocre scientists who are. Uh, uh, so if you just dig deep into the atom, uh, uh, you find out that there is no atom. <laughs> there are no atoms. Do you, th- do you think then that culturally this is the reason that, um, you know, especially within philosophical circles and obviously scientific circles, that concepts such as spirituality and mysticism are taken as um, sort of things that we don't dabble in? You know, they're not serious. Do you think that, the, the, the well, there's, for me, there's quite clearly a connection there, but... Do you think that this is the main reason why there's been a serious cultural damage to um, the supposed seriousness of mysticism and, and spirituality? Absolutely. I can tell you this from experience. For many, many years, 15 or 20 years or so, I had at Leiden University uh, a series of small sh- 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 conferences on, well, we called them philosophy and spirituality. They were very popular. A lot of people came. And not just uh, nobodies, but uh, the psychiatrists, students, or professionals, or all kind of. But uh, but at the level university, it was ignored. <laughs> it was ignored by colleagues. So can you imagine? It, it was crazy. Uh, but I think what uh, what well what you call spirituality, mysticism suffers from is that it has been usurped. Or appropriated by uh, well free-floating minds, or say, or by uh, well people who, who who think that they can, uh, I say, buy an easy ticket to uh, to the absolute, which which is impossible. It's, it, so uh, it starts already with the question: What is spirituality, uh, or what is mysticism? That already is a discussion without end. But if we do as if we knew. What it means, if we just start studying mystical traditions, uh, uh, we find out that there is a lot in it, which is interesting and, and worth studying. And we, I, I found out, but this is very uh, revolutionary what I'm saying now, that even, the, the, uh, let's say, the, the mainstream philosophical canon has its mystical uh, dimensions. I, I want to claim that the greatest thinkers of the Western canon are ultimately mystical thinkers. Uh, absolutely, uh, I, because it starts with what I would call a mystical insight. In other words, an insight which no, which cannot be verified, not perhaps not even uh, repeated by anybody else. What the rest of the uh, thinkers and academics do is try to appropriate a, a thinker's thoughts by studying their work. Uh, and try to organize it, reorganize it, compare it. But what they cannot get access to is its uh, its, its root, its origin. Hmm. That keeps fascinating us. Uh, even even Hegel, uh, well, Hegel has many problematic dimensions, but at root, at bottom, he he has mystical ideas. Uh, 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 it's not so difficult to explain. You can go from Hegel to Schelling to Böhme to Spinoza, perhaps even to not perhaps uh, certainly one could go to Kabbalah uh, to uh, Kabbalah by Isaac Luria. Uh, well, that's an interesting sub current substrand in Western th- think traditional philosophy, uh, Jewish mystical tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So, uh, yeah, mystical or spirituality, it, it is uh, worth studying, not just as a tradition by itself, but also insofar and in as much as it affected, uh, affects uh, the root of mainstream, uh, canonized Western philosophy itself. I, I, I dare uh, to, uh, to claim that I can elucidate this for a lot of Western thinkers whom I have studied. And not the least, that there is a mystical dimension to them. But of course, I would have to explain what I understand by mystical. Uh, but many uh, people just leave it floating in the air, what they understand by mystical, and that damages uh, the discussion. Could you give like a, one famous example and explain what you mean by mis mis mystical? Yeah, so uh, since I started talking about Hegel, I, I think that uh, if you look at the beginning of Hegel's philosophy, there was uh, a, 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 a felt need, both in Hegel and his uh, mates, his friends uh, Schelling and Hölderlin, to restore a lost unity, uh, which they felt was lost in Kantian thinking and Fichte as well. Uh, there was a, an urge to re-establish a felt unity, although Hegel uh, uh, believed that that felt unity is not completely felt or not felt enough, it can only be anticipated. Uh, oh, well, this may start becoming complex, uh, maybe too complex for the podcast. No, no, it's uh, okay. uh, but, but Hegel, uh, uh, well, as uh, uh, in proportion to the development of Hegel's thinking, Hegel uh, discovered that time must be introduced in his mystical uh, surmise or his mystical feeling of everything being connected uh, and te temporality, so development or in other words, history. Uh, so the more you insist on history or history, historicity, the less you will find a mystical notion in Hegel, uh, like Heidegger, for example, who he insisted on historicity uh, 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 and he lost the mystical uh, uh, well, intuition in Hegel. Well, he found it uh, on his own way, Heidegger. But the more you insist uh, that historicity belongs to the mystical or, or to the well immediate uh, uh, awareness, uh, which is a contradiction in terms, an interesting contradiction in terms, the more you can corroborate or underpin the claim that, well, something mystical, something, well, an awareness of something absolute is present in Hegel's philosophy. Uh, so I, 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 it is difficult to explain because I'm in, uh, already bringing up the contradiction contradictions uh, uh, which one, one might overemphasize and thereby lose the mystical element in Hegelian thinking. Uh, it could, to say it in a, more, in a simpler way, uh, one could also refer to the Spinozistic uh, roots of Hegelian thinking, uh, which might be a shortest way to showing or at least making convincing mystical elements in Hegel, Hegelian thinking. But what could also, uh, that's a third strategy, uh, refer to the uh, conclusion of the phenomenology of the spirit, uh, does absolute absolute knowledge, absolute knowing, which uh, which could be uh, interpreted as a, a mystical chapter in Hegel, albeit that it differs from uh, Schelling's uh, approach, let alone of a medieval uh, trajectory. 
So what then is your, um, sort of, if you can, your definition of mysticism? <laughs> this, is a, this is an impossible, uh, a tormenting question. Uh, 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 I can uh, exculpate myself by saying that my definition will be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it will be a wrong definition anyway. You can be sure about that. Uh, yeah, I, and I, my definition must all, also pay a tribute to the times in which we are living because I, I cannot simply repeat a medieval approach or not even a Hegelian. We're living in 21st century. Let's let's put it this way. Uh, the mystical is uh, uh, in thinking is the, the uh, curtain folly or a cr- craziness. Uh, and this is so not so original. I'm thinking of my hero Jacques Derrida who once said to summarize his own thinking, une certaine folie doit veiller sur la pensée. A certain craziness or folly must keep an eye to thinking. Hmm. Uh, I'm sure you like it. I see you smiling right now. <laughs> the, the podcast listeners may not see it, but uh, I, I, I like this a lot. A certain is it craziness? I don't know if that's a word or folly or uh, well, uh, oh, yeah, cra- insanity or, insanity, or yeah. insanity, insanity. And insanity must uh, keep an eye. Must. Uh, how do you say it must be awake overthinking, a veille sur, must keep an eye to think. So, so uh, there must be something crazy about our thoughts. And I, I, I'm, what I'm not claiming is that we do not, sh- should not ultimately take ourselves seriously. Well, we should not take ourselves too seriously, but we not, philosophy is not simp- it's identical to making jokes. So that, of course, well, you can be fun, you can be humoristic, of course. Uh, of course, uh, thinking without humor is uh, is uh, well, is not a good way of thinking. But the, the the humor should be serious in turn. So so because what happens in our world is too serious to to just make fun of. Uh, we are living in a world of when which people are dying, but uh, in in which holocausts have taken place, in which. Uh, mass slaughtering in Rwanda are taking place and genocides are still going on. So that is not a joke. We cannot make fun of that. So, uh, yeah, I, I would, the mystical, to, I, today I would define it in terms of kind of craziness. Eh? A certain craziness should always pervade our thinking. Uh, that's what I love. That's what I love. And I like crazy people. <laughs> uh, I, I like it, especially if they combine that craziness with a form of intelligence. Uh, because, uh, <laughs> but even if not, there are different forms of intelligence. I like crazy artists. Uh, cra- I like crazy people. You can find crazy people anywhere. And there's always uh, uh, something wise in, in it. Okay. So moving, moving on. Um, so the the chapter you sent me was primarily on um, death and to a certain extent suffering and I think this is like when I spoke to um, David Beth he said that you know this is the question of sort of our spiritual reality now you know it's one of the biggest questions and it's always tough to answer but why do you believe that modernity uh, you know the contemporary uh, social domain that we're living in at the moment um, has cultivated the attitude that it has towards death and suffering. Death and suffering is seen as always the worst, if not the the worst outcome. It has to be avoided. It has to be not spoken about. It can't be seen. Um, it, for all intensive purposes, it is entirely ignored to the point where it's actually deemed n- not a thing. I would I would argue that we um, 
in, in within modernity we're seen as we're seen as immortals who uh, we see ourselves as immortals who are just ignorant to our actual fate you know so one of the interesting things that um, Dmitry Orlov said to me recently is that within our current state there has to be a reason for people to die it's never just old age and it's never just well they just you know they got too old and they died there's always something that we could have cured that we could have stopped that, you know so we have this this attitude that is entirely negative towards both death and suffering i don't know where do, where do you believe that this has come from and what what in what way do you think this um this affects our our notion of spirituality and belief and and our, our culture already the way you you phrase your question is uh entails so many interesting uh formulations which, which i would like to draw on because uh uh, your question uh, points at uh, w- ways of well, maybe not answering it, but but dealing with it. Absolutely. So, uh, de- de- if death, uh, if suffering were taken uh, seriously as uh, a- as mysteries or as uh, crazy things or crazy experiences, that would that could not fail to affect. Uh, uh, the truths that we have collected for ourselves, that we have developed for ourselves by science or by uh, ideologies or even religions or wh- whatever truths we have. Uh, it's a kind of uh, blurring or erasing of, of the truths that we have found. Or maybe not erasing, that would imply that whatever we uh, found out by ourselves is worth nothing. That's what I don't believe either. I think that death or so, uh, and or suffering are experiences that somehow interrupt it, uh, interrupt what we uh, are our truths, whatever they are, whether they are scientific truths or ideological or, or, or religious or whatever forms of truth that we have. It interrupts it, uh, but not necessarily to 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 delete them, but to add something to it, uh, uh, which might ultimately enhance them. Uh, so yeah, en- enhance them. Uh, I, I believe that, that uh, uh, well, what is called with uh, with maybe abstract term alterity, otherness, has to do with suffering and or death. So they are experiences which cannot be uh, located. Uh, they, they we ha- do not really have a proper place for them. Uh, uh, we try to give it a proper place by saying, well, death is just the, the end of, of things. It just ha- yeah, it just happens. Everything is finite. So, well, what to say about it? We, uh, but that is not really a place. That is just uh, in neglecting or ignoring death. That excluding the possibility that death is not something that uh, that can only be defined in a negative way, like death is the cessation of heart heart throb or uh, blood circulation, as it is always done. But it comes down to excluding that death might also mean something positively. Because that question is always evaded. So what might death mean or be positively? Uh, Not death as as cessation of something. So I I have tried to develop in my book the uh, hypothesis, because it cannot be more than hypothesis, that death positively is defined or interpreted is an enhancement or a perpetuation, albeit on a different level, of trends that we can already discern throughout our lifetimes, or what we call life. Eh? Because, well, mm-hmm. when we take death seriously, we might perhaps not be so sure anymore of what life means. Hmm. So then the question becomes, so what trends do we see throughout lifetimes that might be perpetuated or even enhanced at death? 
And there I'm inclined to thinking that what we have been used to call in the subliminal or the unconscious uh, uh, is at stake. And the unconscious uh, of which Freud said that is deemed to remain unconscious, but of which I believe that it somehow comes to the fore or pops up, albeit in a transformed way, uh, that that uh, gives reason to speculate about its perpetuation. I'm thinking here especially about, uh, well, uh, tendencies that may show themselves over people's lifetime, like uh, maturing. Maturing is a very interesting phenomenon. So maturing is not just uh, uh, transporting yourself through time until the end follows, but maturing is learning. Learning from experience, or, or not learning, because not hmm. everybody learns from experience. But it's not excluded that I may learn from experience, or that my not necessarily in the form of a rational account of it. Uh, that's sometimes impossible. How to account rationally for the Holocaust, for example? Uh, that's not. That's perhaps too uh, over demanding. But uh, to 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 uh, to integrate it, or to to give it a place, albeit as a continuing trauma. Because the Holocaust, sorry, this is a very a radical example, but you can imagine less radical examples. Or, 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 or to give that a place by not giving it a place. Ultimate traumas cannot really be given a place. But like dealing with it, having to convey it over your lifetime and acting out of it uh, by uh, not being able to prevent that it acts from my actions uh, so, uh, albeit in the forms of tears in my eyes when I'm looking at uh, things that happen in my life uh, and those tears betraying past traumas, for example. Everybody has, has traumas to a greater or lesser degree. So maturing. Uh, but also what I believe are talents. Uh, everybody has, is talented in, in one way or another. Well, some is talented in forms of intelligence or creativity or in a social way. I, I love to define talent not as a capacity in a positive sense, but as a weakness. Uh, a talent is a weakness insofar as uh, it is a kind of uh, a puncture in the tire of my uh, cycle through which something comes in which I don't know where it comes from, uh, like uh, being talented in speaking languages, for example. I, I, I love language and that's what's, well, maybe a kind of talent in some way. Uh, that I, I love I, it's not, it's not just, a ta- it's, I love it. But where does it come from? I don't know. Uh, well, some say, well, it's a kind of complex uh, junction in your uh, brain uh, infrastructure, etc. Well, I may have other uh, uh, deficits as well <laughs> for other things, so like with everybody. Uh, but that doesn't satisfy me. I believe that the talent, uh, uh, and once more, everybody has talents. Everybody has talents of different forms of talent. There are weak spots through which the, well, what I am inclined to calling the subconscious or the subliminal might come in. Mm-hmm. And that uh, can be used throughout our lifetimes in, in social context. It can be put at the surface of others. If we do not do that, it would be worth having those talents. I, I, I love my talents, which I'm endowed with, uh, and I love to put them at the service of others, and I think that many others love that too. Because if you're living uh, living out your talent, uh, like I, f- I feel that to make it personal, you are very talented. Uh, well, you may have many talents, but one of them, I feel that you are seriously interested in someone. That's what I feel. Uh, I, I, you have a lot of other talents, uh, if I got to know you better, but this one is uh, present, absolutely. 
and that is something precious. And if you put that at the surface of others, uh, I cannot, I cannot uh, deny that that gives some pleasure. It gives some pleasure. It's it's this to sexual uh, <laughs> image, uh, like something is streaming through you, which wants to get out, which wants to uh, to be uh, distributed or disseminated. Well, it's a, a nice feeling. And if it's impeded, it feels like, uh, well, it doesn't give you a nice feeling. So uh, a talent is another way of, uh, sorry, I forgot the question. Uh, a talent and, uh, and maturing are ways in which the subliminal uh, is already showing or manifesting itself throughout our lifetimes. And if it be so, uh, I'm not sure, but it, if it be so that death, uh, at death, a certain daily resistance against subliminal forces is lifted, then it might be so that those uh, talents and forces or tendencies simply uh, are simply enhanced or continued uh, on our on a higher or different level. Uh, I, I'm not against saying that it is d discontinuous or at least on a higher level. Uh, and you can add that up with further speculations or with religious interpretations i have no objection to that well yeah one one thing that i noticed when you when you're talking about that um earlier on with with regards to death is actually this sort of um split i mean i've been reading the uh, the hermetica recently and it seems that if you go from like the corpus hermeticum on one side and then the bible on the other there's two routes there and one is cyclicity you know you're on about maturing and this sort of, you know, birth, growth, matur maturation, and then an end. But it's always within a cycle. Whereas if you, uh, if you are attuned to or uh, have a belief in the, the Bible side, it's a straight arrow to a certain end. And then there's no, there's no cycle. And it seems to me that what, what modernity has done with regards to death and suffering is it's taken the Bible route and given us a straight arrow. So we go from birth to death and then we die and that's the end. And it's a straight arrow, but it's also removed the entire spiritual uh, teleology that used to be attached to that. So there's no, mm -hmm. there's no actual, so the death of, in a certain sense, the death of God is the, is the, the, the teleology of, of Christianity, but without the, the, um, the pleasant or bad end. So if you remove the end point of that teleology, then there's no purpose in the in the direction, whereas, yeah. and and that that form of death, that belief in death, removes any sort of meaning. Whereas cyclicity doesn't, because it you you understand your place within a. You're not privileged. You mm -hmm. are in within a cycle. You're simply within other cycles, like a mm -hmm. gear gear in a complex clock. And do you think that this this has something to do with? This idea that we we want to believe that we are the 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 priv we have the privileged journey as opposed mm -hmm. to just being another uh, cyclicity ourselves. Mm -hmm. Thank you for asking this question. Uh, and I surely agree with you that there are tendencies in the history of Christianity which completely support what you're saying, unfortunately, and that may have to do with this erroneous conception uh, or at least a, 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 a one-sided conception of Aristotelian teleology. As you know, Christianity has been highly determined by uh, Aristotle, uh, at least in, in scholasticism, and that has not stopped with the tradition of the Reformation because that's, uh, well, of course, it discontinued uh, Aristotelian thinking, but meanwhile, 
uh, intellectual thinking in Europe has been highly uh, impregnated with Aristotelian uh, conceptuality. Uh, so what I believe is necessary is to rid the Christian tradition and any tradition, Islam as well and, and Judaism as well, and, and uh, whatever, of a superficial form of teleology and reinvent it. So uh, as regards the Bible uh, 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 and, and confronting it with the life uh, esoteric tradition, I think that the Bible as such is not a unity. It's not a unity at all. The Bible is a very complex book in which many different traditions are united to which or onto which unity has been imposed for reasons of power. And, uh, you know, you can, you can imagine uh, scholastic. But uh, I know the Bible very, very well uh, and, uh, and also the source text. And I can tell you that it's very difficult to impose unity on the Bible. I'm not saying that there is none, but uh, it's difficult. There are different traditions coming together in the Bible. Recently, uh, no, not recently, I, I've been studying Franz Rosenzweig many times. It's a Jewish thinker. Uh, he wrote in 1921. He published his uh, Star of Redemption, which is a very interesting, intriguing book, which sets things straight in a different way as regards the concept of teleology that we're referring to. And he suggested, Rosenzweig was a Jewish, uh, a Hegelian thinker as well. Interesting. He wrote his, his uh, thesis about uh, Hegel, Uder Staat, but he also criticized Hegelian thinker and he renewed the conception of uh, philosophy and also of Christianity and Judaism in his own way. I could rec recommend reading, uh, studying Rosenzweig. But what Rosenzweig tried to do is to combine teleology with eternity uh, and that is very difficult mm. to uh, to do because it seems contradictory uh, it would be too difficult for this podcast to try to ex to pretend even to explain this within a few minutes I, I try to be as short as concise as I can so he uh, Rosenzweig makes a distinction between uh, ordinary uh, temporality like past present and future mm -hmm. uh, but which is a kind of flat, one-dimensional conception of time. Mm -hmm. And we make the mistake of doing as if this were an absolute mm -hmm. trinity, uh, as if the past were... Whereas that t form of temporality is surrounded by a, a deeper layer of temporality mm -hmm. in which uh, past, present, and future are something eternal. But again, it's very difficult to think this, uh, and uh, it's not thinking that can simply be explained uh, and, and just tested. Well, do you explain? No, this is something. It must correct the ways in which we are accustomed to thinking us ourselves, since we are Europeans. Let's not forget, we are Europeans. We are used to thinking in a particular way, uh, which, for example, a lot of people in an African tradition or Asian tradition are not familiar. So. Uh, we are also very contingent. In the, so in Rosenzweig, for example, he speaks about the coming of the kingdom. Uh, and the coming of the kingdom, he says, so I'm trying to, to associate this with what you asked me, a very justified question. Uh, the coming of the kingdom, God's kingdom, he calls it. It's something which is both futurist and present and even past which seems contradiction by excellence. Uh, how can that be? How can the future be past? But it has to do with an eternal coming. Uh, the kingdom is always to come. And if you reread Derrida, he speaks about it in the same way, albeit that Derrida pretends to be secularized and not having to do anything with religious Jewish tradition, as Rosenzweig claims, uh, wants to, wants to, claims to. Uh. But even Derrida speaks about a future which is always yet to come, but which can never be identified with something present. 
So what the result is that the, the present is put under a tangent of an eternal future that is always uh, about to come, uh, which suggests that there are several time levels which are interrupting each other and which are simultaneous. Uh, and again, I'm insisting this is, I'm not pretending that I'm explaining something simple, but it even I find this very inc- difficult to think. Uh, but I, the listeners to this podcast, if they are, are, happen to be familiar, perhaps not with Rosendwijk, but perhaps a little with Derrida, uh, and if Derrida refers to to uh, 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 Inspector de Marx, uh, or many other contexts, but all his book on Marx, in which he repeatedly quotes Hamlet, uh, so now I can talk in English, and Hamlet, uh, it, at some point when he's asked, when he is confronted with the shadow, the ghost of his father, who was dead, who was dead, he was murdered, but he asks him, please, uh, Hamlet, my son, you should revenge me, because uh, the one who is king now, my brother, he killed me, and you should know. And Hamlet doesn't know what to do, because uh, ghosts do not exist. This must be a dream. Uh, but he still he feels ethically, morally appealed. So what to do? now? And then he sa- explains, he says, uh, uh, the time is out of joint. Cursed be the spite that ever I was born to set it right. Now Derrida repeats this quote a lot. Uh, 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 and uh, to explain the subject we're talking about is the time is out of joint. The time is not regular. The time is irregular. And the irregularity of time, let's say the susceptibility of ordinary flat time of being to being interrupted by another kind of temporality, that is what I'm talking at. And that is something, a dimension that might have got lost in the predominant uh, forms of, uh, of of Judaism and perhaps especially Christianity and uh, especially in Islam as well, uh, because it's difficult to think this. But at the same time, when we try to think time as an interruption uh, and try to deepening the notion of te- teleology and perhaps even even deepening Aristotle beyond his own intentions, might also make time existential again might uh, uh, liberate time from being just the neutral context within which we are operating and within, within which we are making plans for the future, uh, the five years term in the Soviet Union and, uh, well, all forms of planning that we do, uh, towards time as something existential, as a tension which is imposed upon the here and now. And that might, might bring us back to some uh, mystical articulations, which also, if you think of Meister Eckhart, for example, makes a lot of uh, fuzz, or I say, makes a lot of uh, uh, highly in- invest in the reinterpretation of the present, uh, which is uh, fullness, rather than being just the present, uh, just the here and now. So I, I, I hope it makes a little sense what I'm trying to say. Uh, I, I don't know, but it's it's very complex. Yeah. So you ha- and you have this this quote which says, um, "Death is related to paving new ways through being." Um, so bringing it back to what you were mentioning there of the, the 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 present and the way in which we interpret time. In what sense does do you see death as something which is altering our path, altering our conception of yeah. our being? Yeah, I, I, in in the following way. Uh, again, uh, this is, these are not 
uh, apodictic claims because who am I? Uh, who am I? I, I? As far as I know, I'm, I'm still alive. Or maybe I should say I'm only alive. Uh, so, but I'm just trying to think and, and try to think through certain intuitions which I have, and nothing more, nothing less. So I started uh, from the, the possibility, or perhaps the reality, of trauma. Uh, uh, there may be several forms of trauma, some of which are so big that. They seem to be beyond repair. Uh, if so, terrible things happen to one, they cannot be repaired. Uh, it, it seems apparently throughout this lifetime. Uh, if you have been witness of mass murders of your family, uh, well, nothing can repair this. However, uh, should it be true that uh, this syllogism? Should it be true? A that uh, a trauma is a kind of fixation of consciousness, impairing perception impeding a fuller perception of being since we are so much attached to a past which prevents us from seeing things which are also true which also manifest or even reveal themselves then and if, then be if it's also true that consciousness can be extended can be widened should that be true and should it see should this happen with death insofar as death lifts the ultimate barrier or boundary to consciousness, then it might be so that death, whatever it is, consists of the widest circle, even a limitless or infinite circle, which circumvents trauma to such an extent that it might ultimately sublate, I don't know if that word can be used, sublate, that it uh, uh, deletes trauma. If you throw a stone in the pond, uh, compared to that, ultimately, well, first you have some smaller circles and they always widen until you don't see the circles anymore because they're too wide. Uh, so this is a speculation which I have and it might, one might find some consolation, uh, albeit that it's based upon speculation in it, if one's traumatized, that, uh, that death it creates such a wide embracing circle uh, that trauma uh, not only uh, deletes, is not only deleted by death, but that death also re recreates the past. So that's what I was hinting at, recreates the past. The path which always approached uh, by us, uh, from a certain form of trauma, albeit in the form of a fixation. Uh, historians are traumatized, uh, well, we are all traumatized, so historians as well, uh, it, it meaning that they are blindfolded by certain, uh, well, so certain narrownesses that they are uh, affected by. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what creates a need for subsequent uh, historians that must correct their predecessors. That, that, that may shed a different light, an alternative light on the past or on pasts. So, uh, in light of the possibility that an always wider circle can be, how do you say, drawn around fixations, ultimately around traumas, and in light of the fact that that affects the past, resituates the elements in the past, since they are put in a wider context, that may change or alter the past which might be absolutely paradoxical, if not contradictory to those who believe that the past is something objective. Uh, the past has happened. We cannot change it. We cannot alter it. Uh, uh, so I, I, I believe that the past can be altered, can be changed. 
Uh, but that that may be uh, ultimately uh, indispensable to do that. And uh, and it's I think it will. So is it an under, uh, is it our understanding of the past that's changed, or is it the actual past itself? Both, because we cannot uh, distinguish the past from our understanding of the past. There is no past apart from our understanding of it. Uh, hmm. uh, what is our understand? Our understanding is a kind of uh, ex uh, carrying out, or say, ex, uh, exerting of consciousness. Consciousness is is applied when we understand or when we know something. And consciousness as such is something mysterious, something which is susceptible to always being widened. So it's not apart from being, it's part of being, however difficult to understand. So this is sort of, a, you're talking about a system where memory is primary in relation to the way in which we investigate the world because the way in which we uh, deal with our memories and deal with our past is uh, you know that's from that is where we project our understanding. So, what do you think then happens within a, a world such as our own, where memory is sort of getting shredded into bits, and we we can hardly remember anything, and we 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 no longer it seems have the the patience or attention to actually deal with anything. We uh, seems to me that we're all existing in a very minute presence. We don't have we we've we've severed connections of maturation and understanding. So we, 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 we exist, you know, an event happens, we cling to that for a very brief few days, Corona, Greta Thunberg, whatever it wants to be, and then we move on. And there's very little in the way of memory or network or connection. What do you think happens to man in, in that situation then? Well, thank you all first in the first place for putting it this way because I so much agree with you. And uh, if you allow me to make it personal and is it and still uh, apply it to to uh, be an answer to your question, uh, the way you interview me is uh, I feel uh, is patient. Uh, uh, if you compare that to the majority of interviews, which you uh, I, I do not see them because I never watch television, <laughs> but uh, or well uh, the news perhaps. Uh, they're so hasty, they're so accelerated, and people interviewed must formulate their answers in such a short time. Or politicians, for example, they are not granted time to think. They must give answer immediately. And the questions they're asked, they do not have have answers that, that can be given immediately. Some questions so, are so like Brexit, uh, uh, so complex. Hmm. How to answer these questions? So, uh, and I think it will be the experience of all of us, those listening as well. If you ever had a conversation with someone which took time, in which patience prevailed, the conversation went much deeper than if there were no time. And uh, even if I take another example from my teaching in class, I, I, I like teaching, and I, I think I told you, and uh, teaching uh, for students, etc., and lecture. And it, it happens so often, and you may have similar experiences, that a lot of interesting discussions happen toward the end of the meeting, and sometimes even during the break. When there was no t when there is no time because people should go to another class. Well, of course, I'm not saying that that should be abolished because we have to have time frames and there are other classes and other activities of course of course but it's still nevertheless interesting that interesting discussions happen at the fringes of official meetings if i think about the therapy a therapist a lot of therapists can tell you that the most important uh, remarks are made by patients when it's their time to leave 
Of course, they have to leave at some moment. You cannot talk with a patient for hours and hours. There's no time. It's, there are other patients waiting. But still, towards the end, uh, towards the end of the official meeting, interesting things are said. Uh, yeah. I think, yeah, but I think that that falls into the same thing you were saying about um, TV interviews. So you're saying that I'm a patient interviewer, and I like to think that's because I don't have a bias. I don't. I have these questions laid out, but wherever we go, we go because I'm interested in the knowledge and the information in itself and the ideas. Whereas um, I think there's a connection there. So, so TV interviews, they have a bias. They have something, I think, that they always, they want uh, an audio clip that they can use or they want Boris Johnson to say a certain thing or they want a certain answer. And the only reason they're in that particular place or time is because they want, you know, they want X. And the same, I think, for the same, and from that, once they've got that, they've got their reason to, to leave. So they no longer have to be in that little present where they don't really want to be because they're not all that interested. But it's the same thing as therapy. It's, I think, probably the reason that the interesting, and with meetings, probably the reason that interesting stuff comes up and near the end is you don't have um, as much sunk cost. You're not as indebted because you understand that at any moment you'll be able to leave the conversation. Whereas if you start the interesting thing mid-on, well, then you you've there's a commitment. You know, and that, and there's a, there's a, there's a connection there that if you do it near the end, then at any point you can quickly move into the next thing and you don't have to worry about memory. You don't have to worry about a serious commitment to uh, informational knowledge or actual passion. You can you can just write, I'm off. Like, you know, there's a, there's the line and we're, because we're right next to the line, it doesn't matter. And it may even illustrate what we said before, that, that the interesting moments during a discussion are, uh, they somehow interrupt the discussion. Uh, they interrupt <laughs> regularity. They interrupt time frames. And I'm not saying that we should abolish time frames because we cannot yet live in a world without time frames, unfortunately. That would be a chaos. And those try to implement it would soon be disillusioned. It's impossible. But still, there's a kind of interruption. And, that, and I think uh, when we talk about the news and people being interviewed, that the audience uh, feels it if something, someone is really uh, giving unpredictable answers. Uh, some politicians, they, 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 I don't know about England, but in the Netherlands we have uh, 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 politicians like, uh, not, uh, not talking about Geert Wilders, he's a populist. Uh, you, I, I don't know if you heard about him, the anti-Islam. Uh, anyway, he's anti-Islam, uh, Islamist. He is uh, well, but he is—he is not of the kind I'm, I'm th- referring to, he, because he, in his own way, well, you can imagine anti-Islamist uh, political views. He is—he is predictable. Whereas there are in the past, we had in the Netherlands Pim Fortuyn, but he was shot 20 years ago. Or rest, uh, you may not have heard. Uh, but he gave unpredictable answers. He was also called populist, but unpredictable answers. They, but because the, the audience feel that here is someone. This is interesting, because he does not. Uh, he, he is not uh, for sale. Uh, he doesn't uh, simply give answers that the journalists uh, are hinting at. Uh, he, he he is simply himself. Whether you agree with him or disagree, that is an, another uh, point. That doesn't matter. So and one uh, sometimes I, uh, this is still another thing, but still uh, deals with your question. Uh, uh, often, well, sometimes when giving a lecture somewhere, I uh, suggested uh, attendant participants to uh, during break or at the end of the meeting to go and look around in the what you said the wardrobe where people are uh, hanging their uh, what do you call, you call it their coats etc. Because that is the that is the margin. 
people who have nobody to talk to, who, who, who cannot ha have those uh, fashionable, uh, well, uh, attractive uh, discussions, uh, people who don't have anybody, uh, you can find them there. Mm -hmm. And there can discussions be had with the people who ha don't have anybody to talk to. Uh, I, I take this from Dostoevsky. Uh, he, he, in his uh, brother's Karamazov somewhere says that the interesting discussions are, are always had in, uh, you say, uh, star, star walks, how do you call it? Star mm -hmm. walks? Star walks, yeah. Star walks, or on uh, thresholds. Mm -hmm. uh, this can be verified. Rereading Dostoevsky, interesting discussions are, are held on thresholds and in stair walks. <laughs> so outside, uh, in limit positions, I think you like the word limit. I, mm -hmm. Me too. I like the word limit as well. Limit positions. Mm -hmm. That's what I like. Uh, that's what I, so sorry, this is a, a bit okay. extended answer to the question. I like limit positions and they, they disrupt time, but they cannot be created. Uh, I think, uh, or well, we can prepare ourselves for it, but sometimes it simply doesn't come. Sometimes. Well, no, that's the, the sort of uh, the truism that spontaneous meetings and spontaneous things are always the uh, always the better ones and yes. I, I don't think it is you know there's no there's no real way that you can define why that is I think it's um, potentially it's something to do with uh, time pressure and, and the understanding that if something's spontaneity spontaneous you don't know how long it's going to last for so you uh, you attune yourself to it m much more uh, precisely than you would something if you understand you have an hour then there's not as much pressure but if it's yeah. in a, if it's in a threshold or a limit or a stairwell, then um, everything everything needs to be said quickly. Yeah. If, if for example, if we hadn't had, if we for interview we only had had let's say two minutes or so, mm. uh, uh, my pop, my personal pathology would have let me say things which I might have been ashamed of later, yeah. uh, because other pressure I might uh, and some others perhaps too might say crazy things <laughs> just just by sole pressure of the moment. Mm -hmm. Whereas with more time and relaxation, it might be more beneficent to the conversation. Moving back to to death, um, one thing I w want to ask is how how we can because death and um, death and suffering, as we've sort of glossed over, um, in terms of they are seen as I as I see it um, as ethical standpoints and moral standpoints. So suffering is always bad and. Allowing someone to die is, is arguably um, generally agreed to be bad, and death itself is is bad. But in in a very moralistic sort of way, that if someone's alive, then it's a it's a moral good. Now, I don't I don't agree with this at all. Um, in fact, I'm not sure that they should even really be on that common notion of of that that spectrum of morality. I don't think that's a good place to put them because they're really their. Um, both death and suffering, as you've stated in re with regards to memory, are like nodes in experience from which to learn from. Death is always at the end, of course, but you, you learn in relation to that as opposed to push against it. So how do you think we can move away from uh, or, or remove or understand suffering and death in non-moral terms? Uh, I, I think suffering is will always be there anyway. It cannot be avoided. Whatever we say to each other, it will always uh, interrupt us. I think uh, suffering and death are not to be romanticized because suffering is simply suffering and death is death and are in a way tragic and, and uh, extremely tragic, extremely painful. 
I, nevertheless, I have a, a theory, and uh, uh, not even theory, but even experience, that, so, that there is something about suffering which does not uh, end suffering, but which opens other gates or, or, or windows. Uh, Meister Eckhart once said, suffering is the fastest uh, uh, horse bringing you to God, something like that. One must be careful with this quote, uh, and it's very. Uh, and uh, one must perhaps not quote it to somebody who is in actual suffering, uh, unless the conversation is serious and deep already. Uh, uh, so one must be very reticent. And, and uh, but still, I believe that there might be something true in it. Uh, but as said, I cannot insist enough. It, we must be careful with it. So I, I have had a very difficult period uh, behind me, extremely difficult. Uh, and the suffering, uh, the suffering was suffering, just suffering, uh, uh, absolute dark void. But throughout the suffering, I discovered that there is a kind of beyond, which is not, which is not in the Heidegger, which is not uh, available. Uh, maybe I should even refrain from using the word is. <laughs> I don't know which word to use. Maybe I simply lack the language uh, due to whatever impoverished language that we are all speaking. But there is something, a, a dimension mm. well, beyond the corner, which puts it into perspective, a wider perspective. Uh, albeit that the suffering is still suffering, uh, difficult, difficult. There might be a kind of, uh, might be a pleasure in suffering ultimately. Uh, but very difficult to be had, uh, very difficult to be uh, repeated. Uh, well, there are the extreme. You may be familiar with Georges Bataille. Uh, he takes the extreme example of the China, you know, the picture of the Chinese who was mm-hmm. you know, cut to pieces. It's terrible. I, I, uh, I, I should... death, death by a thousand cuts. Oh, terrible, terrible. I, 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 well, I, I, but anyway, but he, uh, Bataille's claim was that this man in his last moments was ecstatic. I'm not including it. I, I, I think it's good, and I hope it's truth. Of course, I cannot say this from experience because I haven't been cut to thousand pieces yet. I hope I never will. Uh, and the friend you referred to, the brother of your colleague, but um, no, I, 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 I don't. Let's say I don't exclude that uh, in and throughout suffering, a perspective can be had or experienced or witnessed, or maybe I should find still another verb to use which looms around the corner, which gives a kind of hope or offers a kind of perspective. But as said, everything I say and the way I say it right now might be poor and flawed and, and, and so e- you, too you, easygoing. You, you don't think hope can be retrieved or, or maturation can be retrieved from, from suffering? I, I do think that, but, uh, uh, but, but this should not be repeated too easily because it might give an easy way out. So, oh, you're suffering, so you will uh, experience hope or so. It's not, the suffering must be suffered uh, by those who are suffering it. And, and uh, oftentimes the bystanders cannot do anything but just being there. Uh, being there and, well, maybe say something, uh, but uh, sometimes just be there. Sometimes there are no words or, or, uh, or just say something which pops up in you. But it's very difficult to say something to someone who's suffering. Mm-hmm. Uh, some, somebody can be scared or afraid or, or have pain, a terrible pain. I, I, this is really an empathy, I think. So I believe there is hope and that uh, hope can be had from suffering. And I even believe that that sometimes can be said 
as a consolation for those to those who are suffering. But it should be said with care and with paying meticulous attention to the circumstances and the situation. And it and one might one might have to to take uh, to 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 study the response which we are given, for we might be too hasty in coming up with our consolation. Uh, we we may learn here from yeah from people who have been in a position of consoling their fellows who they try to suffer, or therapists, or pastoral caretakers, or whoever. Because there are pastoral caretakers from whatever religious tradition, these are the ones who are, who are facing the fire, who are not uh, just uh, coming up with easy. Well, some of them perhaps, but uh, if you are working from uh, as a pastoral care, are you a caretaker or caretaker or, or a counselor, pastoral counselor, from whatever religious tradition, uh, uh, Islam or Christianity or Judaism, you are soon. Uh, you say um, disillusions that your easy going stories will not help anybody uh, and that you really must go to the bottom with the suffering other and, and that those people can teach others uh, what may be wise how to act how to what to say or what not to say what attitude to take with people who are suffering uh, yeah, and that, that whatever tradition you have uh, uh, behind you, uh, it must be, I think it must be reinvented when trying to console somebody else or when suffering experience, when having a suffering experience yourself. Your background tradition must be, re if it's esoteric tradition, be that as it may. It may be consoling you when nothing is going wrong, but when you're suffering, that tradition must be reinvented. How does it speak to me right now? And that is, uh, yeah, that, that can be painful because you may have been relying on that tradition or that truth or whatever you want to like to call it. Well, everybody has some kind of truth one wants to live by, but it must be reinvented at the moment. And, and a lot of, especially Jewish thinkers, and one cannot read them enough, even though you're not Jewish, even if you, though you want to be something completely different. Uh, but they have reflected upon this, huh? Uh, I uh, sorry for bringing this up as well in the interview, but Jewish thinkers, you can read Jewish thinkers and then go back to your own uh, field of orientation. Uh, uh, several Jewish thinkers, they refer to this tradition of the what they call the absence of God, mm -hmm. of the dark night, of, not, uh, of, of believing in God, but don't know uh, even who he or she or it is in whom you believe. Uh, who is God? I, I think I believed in God so far. I, I followed commandments or whatever I did uh, in a liberal way, orthodox way. But right now, I don't know who this God is. Uh, and that is something that uh, belongs to uh, religious traditions. Uh, so, of course, there are cheap ways. You referred to them uh, some time ago already. Cheat the, the orthodox and the IS is the worst variety that you can imagine, the IS. But I think that at the heart of religious traditions, there are really the, 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 those who faced the night uh, of not knowing who or what the God whom they believe that they believe in is anymore. And again, Judaism can be taken as a paradigm, uh, like the, the, the Holocaust, being a, a faithful believer and, and, and that faith doesn't save you from the gas chambers or for being shot. Uh, this is another interest of my. Uh, I'm very fascinated by Jewish Jewish philosophy, but also by the Jewish tradition, diaspora, etc., etc. 
I, I read a lot of biographies, even by the evildoers, by Hitler, etc. Because I wanted to 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 understand this uh, this mystery. How can you want to to annihilate this tradition, which has so much in store? Uh, anyway, those insisting on the night, the uh, the, the the obscurity, absolute obscurity, uh, uh, they uh, they struggled with it as well. They prevent us from being cheap and easygoing with our traditions. Is there uh, is there anything you'd like to add, or anything? key that we've missed that you think would uh no i i want to i want to uh, I, there are always things that can mm. be added but uh, 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 we should limit ourselves but i want to say that i'm very thankful for this interview and i really 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 want to uh, praise you for the wonderful way and for the welcoming way in which you <laughs> ask questions and also the way you all gave utterance to feelings and sensitivities which i 100% share with you uh, so uh, I don't know if you will let us be a part of the podcast but if so then yeah, uh, sure. uh, the, it, 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 I want to underline you, uh, you're a wonderful <laughs> wonderful person okay. and I want to uh, wish you a lot of success with these initiatives uh, and uh, yeah I, I hope we can whatever way collaborate in whatever uh, future initiative it doesn't matter what okay thanks Rico thank you <laughs>